Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Filmmaker Mariam Keshavars is here with me today. Her latest film, The Persian Version, took home both the Audience Award and the Waldo Salt Screenwriting Award at Sundance. Mariam's work reclaims and redefines the American story so that it includes all of us. And she tells these stories with humor, with love, and with thoughtfulness. Here I am with Mariam Keshavars. Welcome to the podcast, Miriam Keshavars. Thank you for being here. I'm excited for this conversation. Thanks for having me. From one side of LA to the other. <laughs> Girl, I, I, I feel it. I, I know this town. Your new film, uh, The Persian Version, an autobiographical comedy about your life and your family. It made an appearance at Sundance, and you came home with the Audience Award and also with the Waldo Salt Screenwriting Award. First off, congratulations. Thank you so much. This is not uh, your first foray into filmmaking, but this film is very specifically autobiographical, as I understand it. I haven't seen the whole film. I've seen clips. It is hilarious. Uh, But tell me, is it scary to tell your own story on camera like that? Especially when it's a story not just about you. I mean, you know, you're talking about your family, uh, your relationship with your mother, which in the film, uh, at least, is very fraught. What's it like going through the process of sharing all that stuff for the world? I think the making of it is a semi-therapeutic. Sharing it is, it's so interesting to see, like, traveling around the world, how many people relate to the mother-daughter story and the story of generational trauma and looking at how we can break that cycle and just the humor and comedy around my family in specific. I grew up uh, in the film, at least in in the film, I grew up with eight brothers in one bathroom, in real life, seven brothers in one bathroom. And so just like, you know, all of those elements and, you know, the cultural specificity, of the joy and the music and the food and all the things that surround the specifics of our family, of how we created our little microcosm within America, our little, our little immigrant communities and how we preserve joy during hard economic times. All those things were, it was amazing for me to see how it translated nationally and internationally and how many people related to the story of people coming to this country and, you know, intergenerational battles and, and at the heart of it, you know, all of the battles we have within our own families to find our own space, but also to find out who we are and to, to have acceptance within our, within our family. So I think those are universal themes that I, it was interesting to see people relate to because it's so culturally specific. Your protagonist, Layla, is an Iranian American woman who is also a lesbian who also gets pregnant. <laughs> Um, and sort of uh, uh, tells that story. But the relationship with your character's mother is fraught because uh, your character is gay. Does that mirror your real life relationship with your own mom? Yeah, I mean, definitely had. uh, I also had just had issues growing up with my mom because she's such a strong woman and she was so much wanted a daughter growing up when I was growing up, you know, she had all these sons and she had me at the end. And part of the story is looking at why that's so, why did she want a daughter so bad? So sometimes when you get the thing that you want the most and the film talks about how, you know, she's, she's desired this child her whole life. And then when she finally gets her, 
she's not able to communicate with her in the way that she would want because she can't speak about her pain. She can't speak about her trauma in the way that she had hoped she would be able to talk to with a daughter. And I think, you know, there's so many expectations I didn't really understand growing up that were placed on my relationship with my mother. All of the history that my mother had gone through to come to America had been transposed onto me, you know, unwittingly. And so, yeah, I had a hard time growing up, not only because of the queer thing, but because of so many hopes and desires that my mother put on me as the only daughter. And that's something I realized later on when I became a mother. And then when I was writing the film, I understood how deeply connected I was to my mother and how I really needed to understand her. I think, in, you know, when you're an immigrant kid, you think, oh, your parents are so backwards. They need to understand what it's like for me and to modernize with the times. We don't really ever take a moment as children of immigrants to think about what our parents went through and to understand life from their perspective. So I think it was fraught, but I think through the making and the writing of the film, I really tried to be empathetic and I tried to really understand where the origin of this trauma was and, and how it could be healed. And so that's so much about what the movie is about. When did your parents come to America? My parents came in the sixties. I thought I knew the origin of why my family came to America. Cause my, I've always been told there weren't enough doctors in America in the 1960s, particularly in 1967, 68, because they were all in Vietnam. And so they recruited a lot of Iranian doctors to come to America to work in the inner cities, which is actually true, but that's not really why my family came to America. They came because they were escaping a big scandal. And, but that was, my grandmother told me the secret of why it was that they truly came to America. So yeah, I mean, my parents came in the sixties at a time when there were no Iranian immigrants here. They were kind of, they forged the first communities here. And uh, I grew up, my family came to Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn in 1967. Can you share the secret without spoiling the film? No, you have to watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I can't well, wait to see it. So one thing about the secret is like, you know, I was someone who was passed on to the secret from my grandmother. So from another generation to another generation of women, I was, I was became the keeper of the secret, but you know, I, I slowly told my brother, we slowly started to talk about the secret. But I think what, what I learned so much in understanding the layers of the secret and, and what and the scandal that had happened is that my mother was such an extraordinary person. Uh, she was exemplary of empathy and of taking such a hard situation and creating she could have become a victim. She could have been bitter. She could have led, led a very dark life. But she took the circumstances and she found a way to make it a positive experience. She found a way to create joy. She, I mean, to the point that we never even knew for, you know, 40 years, the secret, because it had, she had decided that she was not going to be a victim and she came to America to rewrite her history. And I think that's what's so extraordinary. When I was writing the film, when I was making the film, I realized I'm not just a narrator. I'm not just a writer. My mother is a writer because she came to this country to write her own destiny. I don't want to give away what the secret is, but more than anything, it, it's just more of a tool to truly understand where I came from and to understand the depth of a person's ability to be empathetic if they choose to be. And that that's a great lesson for a writer. It's interesting. You, you bring up empathy and you talk about 
how this film has connected with communities across the board, not simply Iranian-American communities or immigrant communities, but communities, broader communities. Why do you think that is? I think we've entered an era that's so fractured. I think uh, definitely in our country, we've become so fractured. We are uh, even just like we we put a flag about what we are, who, what we believe in and everyone else. We've become so like tribal in a way. It's like, this is what we are. And we exclude everyone else. There's not this sense that we can have difference and accept that difference and find a way to live with that difference. If our country is that fragmented, certainly our families are that fragmented also, right? So I think this is something that speaks to anyone who is different than where they came from, be it because they took a different path than their parents, because they have more economic prosperity, because they're an artist, because they're gay, because whatever, you know, they just decided to marry someone that was outside of their culture, all these different elements of why you would feel like an outsider. I think, um, it's interesting to think that we can have these differences, but find a way to love each other. I think that message is something that's, it's been really strong. It's really interesting to hear, you know, when I take it to different communities saying, Oh, you know, I really got to call my mom. I really, or I got to call my daughter. I, you know, we've been estranged for some, whatever the reason is, maybe we can find a way to communicate again. And I think, That's incredible. When you talk about the experience of being an outsider, either in your family or in your community, or just sort of not kind of feeling like you're doing what is expected, uh, that obviously, not just in the film, but you're becoming a filmmaker, I think is sort of a testament to how one overcomes that and takes their seat at the table. I I read a quote from you where you said that uh, you once thought that directing was for white people. Um, And it wasn't until you were older. (laughs) Yeah, right. Specifically, you know, yeah. It's easy, you know, it was all this. Yeah. How did you, so what helped you overcome that mindset and, caused you to know that you were a director, you belong at the table of great directors. How did you overcome that sense of, you know what, hey, maybe this isn't for me because I don't look like all those guys? Mm-hmm. I mean, I still sometimes, I was, on a, I was on a panel just the other day for variety, for screenplay, and I said, you still sometimes feel that way. You still feel like, do I belong here? Like, how did I get here? You know, like, do I have a right to be here? That's always a good question. You continue to have throughout your career when you've never seen yourself reflected. You know, you've, you really are truly like an outsider. I think the first time I ever saw a woman director that was like Middle Eastern in any way, I mean, I'm American, but like of that descent was they had a, I went to Northwestern in Chicago and they had an art uh, film series at the University of Chicago. Uh, I'm sorry, at the Art Institute of Chicago. It was called Films from Iran. And half the directors they brought were women. And I had never seen a woman director in my life. That was the first time I had, I, I had heard that the, the woman who did big, I guess it was Penny Marshall, was a woman. That was like the only woman I could think of that was a director. So that kind of planted the seed in my brain that, oh, wow, interesting. You can be a woman and a director and even be from patriarchal cultures and all this stuff. And then it wasn't until I was actually doing a PhD in a totally different field when 9-11 happened. And I just felt... I have to leave behind academia. I have to go into film. I have to change the narrative. I I have an obligation as an American to show another face of this part of the world, of immigrants from that part of the world, because I felt that 
like when I was a kid and we were being so vilified and so marginalized and it wasn't who we were. The images that I was, I was being shown on the screen, they just, they didn't relate to the life that I knew. So honestly, I just didn't even know. I just thought I have to do it. I have to go into the film. Um, and I, I made an experimental film in, in relate in um, response to 9-11 with my friends. I was on sabbatical at Berkeley. I didn't know how to become a filmmaker. My brother was working in the towers, right across from the towers. And he called me, he's a writer. He's now an editor and director too. And he said, you know, fat corporate America. I'm oh, sorry. We should, you know, change the narrative. We should go to school to get, I was like, how do we do it? He's like, Oh, well let's apply to NYU film school. I'm like, when's it due? He's like, in two days, <laughs> the application. <laughs> so I wrote the application. I sent in that experimental film, and I won a full scholarship to go to NYU. And that's, I just started there. I mean, I just like, okay, I guess I got to go to film school. And, and I applied, and I got in, and and I met all these amazing people, and I, you know, had all these amazing professors. And I found my path, and, and I grew up loving films. I grew up learning to be American by watching films because I grew up in such an immigrant community where all my parents' friends were Persian. They were Persian doctors, and I would watch American sitcoms, you know, um, Facts of Life, Eight is Enough, um, Good Times. I felt that Good Times was the closest thing to my family because we grew up with big economic struggles. And then I would, when I was older, I would ask my mom to take me to the movie theater, just drop me off at like 11 a.m. and pick me up at 11 p.m. And I would just sneak into all the movies and watch everything I could watch. I just, but I never thought I could make it. I just loved it because it was a window into an America that was not my America. You know, it was like, you know, more white America, I guess. It kind of, you know, mainstream America. But, you know, it's interesting and uh, how entertainment and film and media, they really are something, you know, they are things that bring us all together. I, you know, you just mentioned good times, and now's the moment that we need to raise a glass uh, to the great Norman Lear. Amazing. But, it's 101. <laughs> amazing, right? Amazing. But, you know, so think about a show like Good Times. Like when I was young, there were not that many Black families mm -hmm. on TV. Um, and certainly the images that you saw of African-Americans, there was some dysfunction. There's this, here's a poor family, um, intact, great values. They love each other. You know, like lots of uh, communities in America, they struggled financially. And so honestly, Miriam, it's kind of interesting for me to hear you talk about how that, how you related to that film, Oh my gosh! Right? I mean, you know, a film about this black family, but it, it resonated with you. Definitely. I mean, I, those were the only faces that did resonate with me. You know, like I remember watching, um, another Norman Lear, I think and all in the family, you know, and then you have like the, the character of the, the Jeffersons that live next door and they're like, you know, all the racial tensions, obviously he wasn't, you know, normally wasn't racist. He was underlying the racism that was, you know, perpetrating in America, particularly in New York. But I felt like that character. I didn't feel like, you know, Archie Bunker. I felt like all the people that he hated, you know. And <laughs> you felt like George Jefferson. <laughs> I felt like George Jefferson or when, the, when his hippie son-in-law brought, you know, brought in the Jewish family or the whatever, you know what I mean? Like, I felt that other was me, you know. And even, you know, shows that were, you know, eight is enough is something that was kind of like my family, but it was so, it was so white, you know, but I, the big family part of it, I loved, or, you know, what was it? Um, 
Oh my God. What was the one where uh, the two kids were adopted by the, Oh, different strokes, different strokes. Different strokes. I was like, what would it be like to walk into one of those like Upper East Side apartments? You know what I mean? So I, I felt like the kids in different strokes, you know, I, I, I related probably more in many ways the only images I saw that were anything similar to mine were like, yeah, the black families and the families that were struggling on some level that were real, you know, certainly wasn't the Brady bunch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God bless the Brady's. I never had blonde um, hair. You know, I was hairy. I didn't, I didn't, you know, like I was the one terrorized by my classmates because I didn't have blonde hair because I was, had dark hair and I had a unibrow and a mustache and hairy legs. And I was certainly the other. You weren't a Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. I not a Marsha, Marsha, Marsha in any way, you know? So, yeah. I, but, you know, it's, it's a good segue to something else you once said, which is that part of what you want to do as a filmmaker is to change the narrative of what it means to be an American. And even in the course of telling your story and, you know, uh, sharing what it meant to grow up as the daughter of an immigrant, I heard you say, I'm an American. It's and, so and it's interesting. It's that. so important. It's so important. Why is it important for you uh, to reclaim that narrative? I mean, certainly like uh, the rhetoric that's been floating around for decades, but has been solidified in the last probably 10 years is the fact that this idea that American is only a white American you know, and that everyone else, immigrants, uh, African-Americans, everyone else is not really American, you know? And I just, I internalized that for a long time and I, I did feel marginalized. And then I thought, oh my God, what, that, that's impossible. And even when I traveled more and more, I lived more in Europe and I would say I'm American and, so, and they would say, oh, oh, but you're not really American. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm born in New York. And they say, uh, uh, well, where are your parents from? I said, you know, my parents are from Iran. Oh, okay. So you're Iranian. And then I was like, well, no, I'm Iranian American. Like I'm American. And so then I started thinking, okay, why is even abroad? They think Americans are a blonde haired blue eyed when this country is made up primarily of immigrants, right? Half the country is immigrants of immigrant origin. So I, I started putting all this together in my mind and I thought it is the most important act I can do as someone who's, you know, politically minded is to say I'm American and to make sure that that is a message. That message of diversity is what this country is built on. I mean, I grew up Muslim. My daughter has grown up you know, with Buddhist tradition and Muslim tradition, her best friend is an Orthodox Jewish girl. Um, you know, uh, that's possible in America and we're all American and we all have different backgrounds and we can all, I think that diversity is something that is, in, is the core of what it means to be American as opposed to what it means to be European. In Europe, they struggle more with the concept of biculturalism because they're trying to maintain this concept of French or concept of German but what makes America so great is that there, I mean, the definition of America is one of multiculturalism. It is one of immigration. It's what this country is made of. And we need to, we need to not only acknowledge that, we need to demand that is, that is part of our identity. This country uh, is built on all sorts of people being here. I mean, we are truly a soup, uh, which is one of the things that makes our country so great. Uh, but let's talk about how your film has been received in another country, that is Iran. Uh, the Persian version made its way to the Iranian black market, where, Already? as I understand I it, <laughs> yeah, and it became the biggest DVD oh, that was <laughs> in the market. 
That was my first Sorry. film. Sorry, that oh, was that my- was your first oh, movie, yeah. that, not the Persian version. The Persian so- version just released digitally, and now uh, I mean they're trying to take it down because it's, but it's already been like. I heard it came out two days ago. I heard it's even been dubbed in Persian, subtitled in Farsi. I mean, the thing is they take it down and they put it back up and um, it's incredible. It started with Circumstance, which was my first film that also won at Sundance. That was about two girls in love in Iran. That became a huge sensation, like in the black market DVD world. And then later on with when it became more prevalent with YouTube. It was put up on YouTube in different ways. And I thought what was so funny is that um, like people who were fans would re-edit the film and take out parts that they were, you know, like get rid of the brother, the evil brother, which I thought was cool. Like fan re-edits of the film I thought were hilarious. But again, like, yeah, we just digitally released and I hear that it's very popular in Iran. It's so interesting to me, this hunger to show other aspects of who we are in Iran and in the diaspora. I think obviously films made in Iran are incredible. They're some of the best they've won the Oscar multiple times, but they face a lot of censorship, right? So they have to tell stories in a certain way. And I think, you know, because there's been such a mass immigration to America and Canada and Europe over the last 40, 50 years, it's really cool for Iranians to see a story that takes half place, which has never been happened, never been done, or the story is truly a story of immigration where half the story takes place in Iran and half the story takes place in America. And that's unique. And people are really like connecting with it. And also because there's not that many comedies made back in Iran. There are some, but this is a dramedy and it's unusual and it's very youth oriented. And so just, I've literally gotten a few thousand messages in the last 24 hours. I'm sure much to the distributors dismay because they keep taking it down. But (laughs) But it is interesting. You know, I feel like this is the only case it's hard as an artist to think that your work is being stolen essentially when it's pirated. Right. But in countries where they can't access the film in a traditional way because of censorship, um, I do find that that's okay in my mind in some ways because it's important that the work gets there and that people see it and that it's an alternative, obviously, with everything that's happening in Iran with the Women Life Freedom Movement just to show three generations of strong women is important. You're banned in Iran now, is yeah. that right? My mom's like, can't, you, can't you just banned. make nice, sweet films? You have to get banned from countries. Uh, I can go back. I just can't leave. It's Hotel California for me in Iran. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that doesn't... <laughs> I mean, if I'm but laughing, this... everybody understand. That is a dark, dark... Uh, that <laughs> is only you know, very darkly funny. Her. My grandmother was, you know, she was ill recently and we were so mm-hmm. close. She's a ca- big character in my film. She was the lead character in my first feature documentary. And we were so, so close and I couldn't go back when she was ill. And then she passed away. And, you know, when she was sick, she would FaceTime me. Don't you love me? Don't you want to come see mm-hmm. me? She wouldn't understand that I can't go back, you know? And that was really heartbreaking for me to think because of a film, I can't go back. You know, I can't how did you find that. out? How do they tell you you're banned? How is that message communicated to you? Well, you know, when Circumstance came out, I think in the in the national paper, we were like 10 most anti-Iranian films. And I have, you know, we put out feelers with the idea I wanted to go back. And they were like, definitely no. <laughs> Don't come back. You can come, you can come in, but yeah, you're not leaving. Yeah, you're not leaving. It's heartbreaking, um, honestly. And I always, I do dream of like going back to, and, you know, seeing my family. and But it was really connected to my grandmother. Now, when she was gone, it just was a whole chapter in my life. A while ago, I remember I was talking about The Handmaid's Tale with a friend. 
And someone had said, you know, we were talking about this oft-repeated question, which is, can you imagine something like that actually happening? And we were like, it actually happened to the women in Iran because they lived very different lives uh, Mm -hmm. before the Islamic Revolution than they do now. When you look at the resistance that's taking place amongst Iranian women, is there hope there? And let me ask a different question. I, I, I... have to believe uh, that ultimately at the end of the day, hope makes its, it shines its light. Um, Sometimes it takes a whole lot of blood and a whole lot of pain. Well, honestly, I Uh, don't think we could have have this revolution unless there was hope, right? I mean, I mm -hmm. think a woman-led revolution where women demand their rights is something based on hope. It's based on aspiration. And I think What's so interesting about, uh, like, really the first led woman revolution is that that doesn't come out of nowhere. Like, my film, my mother's story takes place in the 1960s during the last regime, during the king that was so modern. It still was a patriarchal society. Women still fought against the patriarchy, fought against what was expected of them. And in this regime, what I find so fascinating, and I'm someone who spent my whole life back and forth. I, I spent every summer visiting my grandparents and stuff. So this is a regime that was just very like gender apartheid essentially, but women still were educated 50, more than 56% of the university were women. More than half the doctors are women, half the university professors are women. They have higher representation in their elected officials of women. They have more female directors than us. So I think, wow, all these women became so educated under those circumstances because they demanded to have a place at the table, even under the most difficult situations that we can't even imagine, but they still fought. And the reason that we have a woman-led revolution, because you have one of the highest educated groups of women in the entire region, they have PhDs, they have MDs, they have law degrees. Do you think these women are going to sit back and let them be bulldozered anymore? They have hope. They have aspirations for their kids. They demand all these are many educated women that organize this events. And I, that's gives me so much hope. You can't, educate half of the the country and then expect them to lay down and keep taking this stuff. They won't. And I think that's a message of hope. Like you give education and you give all these things to women. That's something you can't take it away. You can't take away what they've seen, which is a mass movement. You know, it's pretty amazing. And, and the resistance continues, you know, half the women there don't cover their hair anymore. That's unheard of. That's you know, incredible. Like, Still now, my cousins, I send photos, they're not <laughs> covering their hair anymore. That, I mean, might seem small, but in a country that where your clothing is so monitored, that's a big political gesture, you know, and that women still do it, even though they might get arrested. I, my hat's off to them. And that, that's a story of hope, you know, that they want to make change. And just by the act of continuing it, to your point, underscores that they believe that things will change. Uh, well, you have the Nobel Prize winner as an Iranian woman, right? She's been, she, they release her from jail and she speaks out again. She hasn't, you know, she has two kids who are teenagers that now live in Paris and she hasn't seen them in years, but she continues to fight. Like the second they release her, they're like, okay, if you don't say anything, you can live a normal life. And she comes out and what does she do? She says something, you know, she's sacrificed. She's sacrificed her own personal life for, for that message. It's impressive. Marion, before you go, you know, you talked about being on this panel recently where you still 
kind of struggle with some imposter syndrome. Um, I, I, I think a lot of us do. From time to time, you know, it creeps up. Like, how did I get here? Do I really belong here? Am I smart enough? Good enough? You are. Look at your successes. You, you know this intellectually. There is somebody watching or listening who doesn't yet know it intellectually, mm-hmm. who doesn't have your body of work. Uh, to support them, you know, who is still trying to create it or still trying to decide whether or not uh, they belong maybe in Hollywood or is it, you know, another discipline uh, where there aren't many folks at the table who look like them. What is your advice to those people? What do you say to them as somebody who has defied expectations, defied stereotypes, shown up in places where once upon a time you didn't think you would be? What do you say to others who want to take that journey? I have a couple messages. One is it's a really hard journey. So I always say, make sure it's the thing that you absolutely have to do. I felt like I had to do this. Like there was nothing else I could do. Once I went down this path, it became my goal. Like it was, there was no other goal that I could reach in my life that would be as important to me. That's one thing. The other thing is community, like through the years, community of other BIPOC directors, of women, of independent artists. Community is such an important thing so we don't feel alone. It's such a struggle and other people understand that are in that boat. Community mentorship. I really benefited from mentors through my career and I now mentor a lot of other younger filmmakers. And that interaction is so vital because it is also an art form, right? And we learn from each other. And there's that element, even like once I got on the panel, I was fine because I realized these are my cohorts and we were laughing and like, Oh, we all go through the same process, but we're, uh, we're, we're so isolated sometimes, or we're so competitive sometimes, right? We don't remember that this is a community that we're actually more alike than we think as writers, as artists. And I think community, mentorship. When people open the door for you, remember to pay that back. I've tried really in my career to do, to, to really live by that motto and that it's not a zero sum game that we can help each other as women, as minorities. You know, people Instagram me all the time. I'm a young filmmaker. I went to NYU. I'm so busy. I have a, you know, I have a family, all this stuff, but I try to make the time. I'm like, yes, like let's, let's set a call or let's grab a coffee or how can I help? Well, you know, just because that's important. You know, I remember when people did that for me, but also I think solidifying as artists or whatever your field is as to the why. I think I've always been clear with myself, even in the hardest times. Trust me, there's so many times I've wanted to quit. I've thought so many, like, why do I do this? This is so sometimes demoralizing. It's so sexist. It's so racist. It's like, I could, I could be the head of a hospital. You know, originally I was studying medicine, uh, like my friends and, you know, and it's, sometimes you feel so disrespected, but you have to remember who you are and why you're doing something. If you can always make that your guiding light, I think you'll get through hard times. Thank you for that. Thank you for uh, spending your time here uh, with me today. I really am honored. I, I haven't seen the entire film yet. I've seen some clips and it's hilarious. Like it really is. I'm sending it's you a so, link right now. As when we it's get so off. funny. for you to see oh, it. Okay. I, I would love to. I would love to. I'm going to see it. I mean, if you send me the link, I'll watch it, but I, I, I'll also buy it and um, I'll stream it's, it. We got it. It's out it's streaming now. You can buy it or you can just pirate it in Iran. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to pirate it. I'm not going to pirate it because I actually, I live in a country where I can still watch a movie, where I can watch exactly. a movie. That's so I'm going to buy your movie. Exactly. I'm going to buy your movie. It is the Persian version, everyone. Miriam Keshavar's, uh, the latest. It's an award winner at Sundance. Uh, I'm going to buy it. 
I'm going to watch it. The clips I've seen are hilarious. And Miriam, uh, your story is profound and compelling and inspirational. And thank you so much for sharing it with me. I, I really, I, I'm, I'm honored by you. Really fun night. <laughs>